Counting by Sevens by Holly Goldberg Sloan. As you listen to today's read aloud podcast, please think about what role you have in our discussion for Friday. If you need to have a notebook or sketchbook nearby to write or draw notes to help you remember questions you might have or vocabulary words you're describing or a summary of the text that you're looking to provide, please go gather those now. Chapter 37. It was late when Dell finally stumbled into his apartment. He literally didn't recognize the place, and not just because Patty was sleeping on the new Salvation Army couch and Quang Ha was sprawled out on the carpet nearby under a red blanket. Dell shut the door and moved into the hallway. Willow and May could be seen sleeping in the second bedroom in the Semper Fi bunk beds. He wondered why they hadn't all gone home, and then he remembered they didn't have a car, and right now, neither did he. He'd walked home. After staring in wonder at all the changes, he finally made it to his room, where his bed was made up with Patty's sheets and a fluffy comforter. Dell planted himself face first on top of the mattress, and that's where he was only five hours later when the sound of the shower in the bathroom woke him up. It was not a normal noise. He'd never heard running water in his own apartment. Dell opened his eyes and realized the sound was from the bathroom. He squinted at the digital eyes of his bedside clock and saw 5.21 a.m., Who would get up this early? It was one of them, and he had a good idea which one. Dell would have given his left foot for another hour of uninterrupted sleep. He shut his eyes and suddenly saw himself minus everything below the ankle on his weaker side. That made him wonder if the injury meant he'd collect some kind of disability payment from the school district. He used his right foot to drive, and most people did, so he guessed the left foot didn't bring in as much cash in a settlement. Isn't that the way insurance companies worked? Everything had some kind of predetermined price? Maybe it was better to give up a left arm. And then there was a knock on the door, and Del Duke Internal Idiotic Discussion Forum was interrupted by the voice of Patty Gwynn. Are you awake? He wanted to say that he was now. Instead, he answered, been up for hours. He hoped it sounded deeply sarcastic, but she answered, me too. Patty pushed the door open and entered talking. Social services is coming back next week. Until they find a permanent place for Willow, I think it would be easier if we just stayed here. I can't keep cleaning up after you. Dell was silent. Not because he didn't have an opinion, but because he didn't have the energy this early in the morning to scream at the top of his lungs. Patty forged on. I saw a notice on the board in the laundry room, Unit 222, just down the hall, looking for a roommate. Dell shut his eyes. This had to be a dream, except that in his dreams, usually he was hiding, and often his body had mysteriously been painted bright blue. Dell opened his eyes, and Patty was already heading to the door. I'm going to get the email address. It's not too early for you to send a message saying you are interested. It's temporary, just until we get this all straightened out. 
Dell had seen Sadhu in the parking garage, but they had never even so much as said hello. Now, at an insane hour of the morning, he was sitting across from the man. The crazy Gwen woman had insisted that he send an email right away, and then to his horror, his laptop showed an immediate reply. The guy who was just down the hall wanted him to come over right away and meet. Shouldn't the man be asleep? What was wrong with all these people? Sadhu cleared his throat and said, I'm a vegetarian. Del nodded. Sadhu looked suddenly hopeful. You are a vegetarian too? Del shook his head. He wasn't going to lie, but he also wasn't going to go into detail about his meatloaf obsession. Because Del was so tired, he looked appealingly like someone who had been to mime school. Or at the very least, believed strongly in the power of non-verbal communication. His answers were a series of head movements, punctuated by yawning, raised eyebrows, and semi-swallowed hiccups. And that is why he was approved as a roommate. Minutes after he took his seat, Patty Gwynn came down the hall and wrote Sadhu Kumar a check for one month's rent for the second bedroom in Unit 22 in the apartment complex where Dell already rented Unit 28. She would cover his expenses living with Sadhu, and Dell would continue to make the payment on his place. As he shook hands on the deal, Dell found enough of a voice to make a statement. He said, Spicy food gives me indigestion. Sadhu nodded his head, nodded his head as if he understood, but Dell felt certain the guy was pickling peppers on his stovetop. Chapter 38 It's all just temporary. That's what Patty says. I believe this is her favorite word. What is more temporary than nail polish? No wonder she had such an attachment to the concept. Patty explains that until the right place can be found for me, we will all stay at the gardens in Unit 28. There will be weekly home visitations from social services, and the coming and going would be too much. I don't explain that everything in the world is temporary because I don't get into those conversations. I say that I understand. But I feel bad for Del Duke. Not just because Patty and I saw his underwear mountain, which maybe is why he agreed to move down the hall. Back home, when I used to sit in my garden, I liked to observe birds, and not just the green rumped parrots, but also the migrating species. I think now about how small birds often move in large flocks. From a distance, it can even look like smoke. It is unclear why they suddenly shift directions. The birds appear to have lost their individual attention, intention. They are part of a bigger organization of life, and they accept that. Something inside them gives in. Scientists don't know what that is. Right now, I'm in a flock, and so is Del Duke, whether he likes it or not. I watch as Del gathers together some of his clothing, his toothbrush, and a container of what looks like hairspray. He heads down the hallway to Sadhu Kumar's apartment with a heavy step. 
He's not stomping, but it's close. Who can blame him? Two hours later, with May and Kwang Ha awake and helping, Dell's work clothes, as well as his oversized sweatpants, his collection of sandals, and enough underwear to last six months are all jammed in the Kumar apartment's second bedroom in the tiny closet. Only a garbage bag of old t-shirts stays behind. And since Dell's bureau and closet are empty, Patty borrows his car and brings over more things from the nail salon. May goes with her. I don't think that I've ever seen my teenage friend so happy. Dell has a huge TV and he hasn't programmed it correctly. I adjust the settings and now everything isn't all stretched and too bright. I also fix it so that the audio is in sync with the picture. It just wasn't properly aligned before. I notice that over 70 channels haven't been activated. I don't think that he read the manual. Dell comes in and sees the changes and says that people do look better, not so orange and wide. He especially is pleased that when they speak, their lips match. I show him the new channels that I've programmed and he gets angry because he's been paying for a year for premium services. He's pretty worked up about it. I know for certain that we will now have to have things to talk about in our weekly counseling sessions because he's asked me to review every appliance in the place. Tonight, the new living arrangement takes effect. May and I still sleep in the second bedroom. Patty is now in Dell's old room. Dell is down the hall at Sadu Kumar's. Kwang Ha has officially taken over the living room. He has blankets and a pillow on the couch because he sleeps right in front of the big TV. And I mean right in front. This could cause eye strain. But he looks so thrilled with everything about this new arrangement that I don't bring it up. I wake up in the Semper Fi bunk bed this morning to the realization that I'm going to need to pull my own weight. At least as much as a 12-year-old kid can. My parents didn't have life insurance or much in terms of a savings account. They were responsible and hardworking, but it turns out they didn't excel in the long-term planning department. I will start by putting Patty's accounting from Happy Polish on a new computer program. Everyone has made sacrifices for me. I feel that it's the least I can do. Three days have passed. Maybe it's some kind of joke, but Kwang Ha leaves an avocado pit in the window ledge in the kitchen. Apparently, he loves guacamole. May says when Kwang Ha was little, he put toothpicks in the sides and tried to grow avocado trees. Kwang Ha then gets mad and throws the pit in the garbage. I have not thought about cultivation since before. It was too painful. But when no one is looking, I rescue the avocado pit from the trash. I almost cry just looking at the thing. Suddenly, I, I can't help myself. I start to think about soil composition. I try to push it out of my mind, but I can't help myself. Later, when I glance out of the window, my eyes fall on the scrubby trees across the street. Three different species. I consider the possibilities of grafting the woody stems from one plant to another. 
I'm lying in bed. Everyone is asleep. It is late. Night is always the hardest. The shadows pull you under. I hear a dog somewhere outside barking. I shut my eyes, and instead of darkness, I see rooting hormones. I have placed what May calls my lucky acorn on the box next to our bunk bed, which serves as a nightstand. I open my eyes and stare at it. The world of plants is a slippery slope. It's hard to care just a little. Chapter 39. It's the weekend. I come into the living room. Kwang Ha is sprawled out on the sofa, moving from channel to channel, as if being paid by the number of programs that he can simultaneously track. His agitation is some kind of internal struggle, but it isn't muscular, it's mental. I know the difference. He doesn't take his eyes off the television, but he says, are you looking for something? I want to say yes, that I'm looking for anything that could make the world gone flat return to its original shape. But instead I just mumble, no, I'm just getting a glass of water. Dehydration is the cause of 90% of daytime fatigue. Someone is knocking at the door. It's Saturday and Patty's at work. May is out with friends. Kwang Ha and I are both home at the gardens. I open the door and Dell is standing there. He starts to say something, but nothing comes out. I know how that feels. This is all weird for so many reasons. We all live in Del Duke's apartment, and he has to knock to even come inside. Patty set down some ground rules on Thursday. She is tough. She actually took away his key because he locked himself in the bathroom the second day for over an hour, and he should be using sadhus from now on. But I pull open the door for him, which is welcoming. If we were in the wild, I would part the leaves of the tree and move back on the branch. He takes a step inside. Kwang Ha shouts over his shoulder, Whatever it is, I didn't do it. Kwang Ha has a real persecution complex, which is no doubt legitimate. The chubby counselor says, I don't have a television down the hall. I'm missing all my shows. Kwang Ha answers, You can watch with me as long as you don't do anything nasty. I see Del Duke's face soften. I think he likes the word nasty. I'm invisible now, which is fine by me. Dell moves closer to the big screen TV, asking, do you watch a lot of sports? Kwang Ha's response seems like a joke. <laughs> Not if I can help it. This apparently is the right answer because Dell seems relieved as he drops down onto the couch. It's a real thud. And I feel bad for whoever lives underneath us. I didn't have siblings, and my dad never had friends over to hang out on the couch and talk back to the television set, but that's what's happening now, so this is all new to me. Dell takes out a pair of fingernail clippers from his pants pocket, and while Kwang Ha flips through the channels, Dell pulls off his socks and clips his toenails. I don't think you would do that if you hadn't lived here before.
I retreat to the shadows of the kitchen. Instead of staring off into the space or sleeping, I watch. Since the accident, I feel next to nothing about everything. So it is possible that this surveillance will be beneficial to me from a psychological standpoint. But probably not. The teenage boy and the man are as close to wild animal observation as anything I've ever seen. I realize that this is a unique opportunity to get insight into both of these people. Not that either of them is very mysterious. Not that either of them is very mysterious, but I'm looking for understanding of bigger things. Like the human race, as an example. Right away, I notice that Del and Kwang Ha scratch more than girls. They are slumped down in their seats and appear to be really concentrating on the television programming. On three occasions, I hear what can only be described as aggressive laughter. After the third outburst, they each make a fist and bump knuckles. For a nanosecond, I fear that this signals a fight. But it's just the opposite. The knuckle touch is a bond. I know for a fact that these two people don't even like each other. Is the television programming bringing them together? Why would watching a group of out-of-control young women competing in a canoe contest do this? I conduct my surveillance from the shadows next to the purring refrigerator. It is a silent, motionless observation. They seem to have forgotten that I'm in the apartment. Their behavior appears completely reflexive and natural. Kwang Ha has the television remote. And he moves through the channels in a way that a grandmother might turn the pages of a speedboat catalog featuring water skis. There is not much stopping for analysis. Del and Kwang Ha appear to be hunting for two things. Mostly they are looking for acts of violence. They watch with great amusement as a man in our cartoon gets injured with an ice pick. The rest of the time, they seem to be stalking the airwaves. When they find something like either violent or appealing, they stop to enjoy the visual, visual stimuli. It all seems very inappropriate. There is a whole language to be learned here. This is an education. After a while, I've had enough and I go downstairs to be outside. I need fresh air. Growing up, unless it was raining hard, I was outdoors for part of every day. Now I want to sit in my old backyard, which is in some ways a jungle, but of course I can't do that. Even though this place is called the Gardens of Glenwood, there are nothing but weeds and the dusty pumice rock in the central open area. I take a seat on the steps and stare at the layers of stone, which look from a distance like heaps of red potatoes. I shut my eyes, and as long as I keep them closed, I'm surrounded by greenery. I can feel the plants swaying in the wind and the ground alive below me. I used to be somewhat of an expert on earthworms because a good garden holds so many kinds of life. Over the years, I made homemade paper from tree pulp, and I've mashed grapes with my feet but it was easier to use a blender. We harvested a lot of what I grew. 
Now I listen to the dryer tumbling in the laundry room and someone's radio. I can't help but hear bits of an advertisement for a place that sells discount tires. The guy on the radio doesn't know I lost my parents. He's just selling cheap rubber wheels. The person who put the clothes in the dryer has no idea that I need a foster home. Overhead, I hear the sound of a jet engine, and I open my eyes and look up in time to see the planes pass by high in the sky. I'm thinking now about the passengers on board. I'm wondering about them and their lives. Are they looking down out the window next to their seats? Do they see a two-story apartment building that is an unappealing color of pink? Do they give a thought to the people inside? Do they feel a girl sitting on the steps trying to make sense of the world? I seriously doubt it. Who wants a seat at my pity party? I get up and head out the gate to the front of the apartment complex. I see a hummingbird in a bottle brush tree that is planted in the space between the sidewalk and the tree. I make a decision and head upstairs. Del and Quang Ha barely look up when I enter. They are watching a beach volleyball game very intently. I go to the kitchen and I boil four cups of water. This releases the chlorine. I then add one cup of sugar, which easily dissolves because of the heat. Redoing read aloud podcast, please wait. I wait for this mixture to cool. This is what I used in the past to feed hummingbirds in my garden. Now I pour the still warm syrup into a bowl and I go back downstairs. But first I put on my red sun hat. Outside I take a seat right next to the flowering bottle brush tree. I dip my hands into the sugary mixture and I sit very, very still. It takes a long time, but a ruby-throated hummingbird finally descends and eats from the tip of my on-moving, sweetened index finger. I've heard that there are places that hold statue contests, but I'm certain that they aren't anywhere near Bakersfield. I will see only what I want to see. It's possible that's how people get through crisis. If I'm sent to this by the state of California to foster care in a remote location with no internet, no books, and no vegetables, where I will leave with a, live with a family who secretly worships Satan and only eats canned meat, then so be it. Until then, my life is at the gardens of Glenwood, and I'm thinking this place needs a real garden. And that concludes our reading of Counting by Sevens. Please make sure to take any notes that you need in order to participate in Friday's discussion, whether it be your vocabulary words, your questions, or a summary of everything we have read thus far.